Hello and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science, half an hour on your radio where we talk about science. My name is Stu and on this week's show I'm going to be talking about the science of marathons. Well, specifically, are they actually good for you or could they possibly kill you? I know so many marathon runners that like bleed while they run. Like What? Yeah, like their nipples bleed yeah. because yeah, it yeah. rubs Chafing. against the sh- Yeah, yeah. Mm. The Vaseline, um, no product endorsement there, but the Vaseline is a good thing. Yeah, them. and like some some sort of non non branded petroleum based yeah. jelly yeah. would be good. I mean, I keep I keep telling myself I'm going to do a marathon one day. I want you to give me a good reason not to, Stu. <laughs> uh, well, I'm not going to talk you out of it necessarily, but I'm gonna ne- I'm gonna insist that you think very carefully okay. about it. Uh, marathon of running. Yeah, That's Manisha. Yes. What? Have you got for us? Um, so today I actually wanted to talk about our favorite little parasite. I'm going to be talking to our listeners about Toxoplasma gondii. Chris. Well, I have some hashtag fake news for you oh, all. Oh, dear. Actually, it's more inaccurate news. It was a study that I saw mentioned recently, and I just thought I would do with my own little fact check on it. When I tracked it down, it turned out that it was a bit different to how it was quoted, but it was in an unexpectedly ironic way, which is the reason I'm, I'm talking about it, because, yes, I was quite surprised by the, the delicious irony of this story. Okay, well, stay tuned for that mysterious story later in the show. Do you guys run for fun? <laughs> Wouldn't call it fun. For I, exercise? I, yeah, I, I, I've been known to, uh, to run. Um, I've been a bit slack the last couple of weeks, but you know. Uh, yeah, I've been slack for the last maybe 600 weeks. But so yes. really, yeah. <laughs> r- r- running for but the I bus run. doesn't count. Um, but it seems like every weekend there's some kind of running event mm. somewhere that people all get out there and uh, aspire to run a marathon. People seem to be having their bucket list of running a marathon at least once in their lives so yeah. they can say that they've done it. It's a kind of like an achievement. It's like climbing a mountain kind of thing or, you know, it's, it's that kind of stuff. You know, I've, I've done half marathons before. Um, I've never quite gotten beyond that. So, I, I, yeah, it's why something I would like to do it. Why can't things like eating a full like bucket of ice cream be on my bucket list? Why does it well, have that, to be physical totally climbing can. mountains? You can, you, totally can, you can put that on your list and you can probably achieve. You can knock that yeah. over tonight. I've already achieved can. most of those <laughs> low-hanging fruit. <laughs> so <laughs> I, was, I was wondering if running a marathon is actually a good idea because it's, it's a pretty strenuous um, and, you know. Uh, so you're considering it? Um, well, I've thought about it, but um, I, I was just interested in, in how popular the mm. idea of doing it. You know, people run the Boston Marathon and mm. all these mm. different marathons all yep. over the place. So I looked into marathons and specifically if there was any science uh, in in how you run a marathon or preparing to run a long-distance race like that and what effect it might have on the average human body. So mm. you probably know that the uh, the marathon is named after a legendary run by a Greek fella named Pheidippides, who ran from the town of Marathon, he ran 42 kilometres to the city of Athens to tell all the people in Athens about a military victory at Marathon. I'm not 
I'm not really sure why he ran because the battle was over. Mm. He could have just, you know, strolled. He was excited. He, he was probably just a little bit overexcited. So excited, in fact, that when he got to Athens and told them that the, the Athenians had won against the Persians, he collapsed and died. Now, oh. look, let's, let's put it into context. I mean, he hadn't really trained. Well, see, the thing is, Running he, he probably did. Good. His job was a runner. He mm, was a messenger okay. runner. So that's what he did all the time. Does history record his time? Well, history <laughs> is, is an interesting question in this context because we're not really sure if he was a real oh, person or okay. not. Um, so <laughs> he ran all the way to Athens, supposedly, and got there and then he died. So <laughs> what I was wondering is that a risk for marathon runners today in, in the real world doing marathon uh, running. It would um, be for me, that's for sure. So I looked around and I found that researchers in Canada back way back in 2010 had looked into physiological changes that affect marathon runners by looking at their hearts with an MRI before and after a race, and they found some worrying results. They found that the hearts of runners who had not trained as much before the race actually changed shape. So their hearts started changing shape. In a good way or a bad way? In a bad way. So it was pretty much damaging their their uh, their heart muscles. Um, so I, I ought to do something about that. <laughs> That's a heart joke. I yeah. got it. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> so they, they, they figured that the changes were, you know, they're, they're a normal reaction to that amount of stress on on the human heart and that it's actually probably stopping the heart from getting damaged further, that it sort of starts changing shape. But putting your heart under that much stress is not that good for you. Mm. Um, so they thought that, you know, that it would be protective changes that were happening. Uh, but they also found that it was reversible. The damage is reversible that the, that the uh, runner's hearts were undergoing. Um, but they thought they found that it could take up to three months after the race, after a single race, for all that damage to repair itself. In, wow. I suppose in it's just like any other muscle, though. Like if you just started using a random muscle that you're not used to using all that like much and that hard, you're going to strain it. You're probably going to pull it. It's Does, it's a bit more than pulling. It's actually it. changing the shape of yeah. the chambers of the heart and what, things like oh, that. So what was the like? What was the you said that these were for the um, athletes that hadn't trained yeah, as so, much. So what was that threshold? Well, they, they just found that people who had trained less were more likely to have these I see. changes I see. Um, than the people who had done proper um, training uh, because the better trained runners didn't have the damage to their hearts I see. after the races. Um, so for some people, obviously, running a marathon can have serious health side effects, but that's not the end of the story. I found some more recently published research from Spain where researchers found that there is probably a genetic component to how well a runner's body copes with endurance races. Mm. So um, these endurance races... Uh, when the available energy in your bloodstream starts to deplete, so you run out of glucose, which is the yep. easiest to access energy source, your muscle tissue starts to break down and it leaves all of these uh, protein traces in your bloodstream. Wouldn't you go for the fat first? Well, it does It does all sorts of things at once. Right. It's, it goes, we've run out of food, we'll just start you know, Breaking ripping into all the tissues. That Surely we can... if you're running, you need those muscles. <laughs> I, think, I think probably um, the first... 
reaction would be stop running. Yeah. Uh, and then you you won't need that energy anymore. But I'm just picturing you driving a for... car and you run out of petrol. Think let's burn the tires. <laughs> You could you could maybe do that in some sort of diesel engine mm, potentially. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I have heard of a guy getting out of some trouble with a truck where he put the uh, the oil out of the sump in the diesel engine and got a little bit further to oh, where nice. he was going. Yeah, yeah it's a clever guy. Um, so your your muscle tissues start to break down because you've run out of energy <laughs> and release all these proteins into the bloodstream. So they can actually measure the proteins. Just by taking a blood sample, they can yep. measure how much of these protein traces are in your blood and therefore how much your muscles have started to break down. Um, so they can do this, you know, to individual uh, runners. Either, you know, they can actually stop them in the race and take a sample and before and after and all sorts of You probably wouldn't want to do that <laughs> no. if, you, if you're actually in, in it for the race. Um, but so they look... <laughs> just run alongside. Yeah. This won't. You'll just feel a little pinch. <laughs> and hold the thing. Just hold that there. On um, so they looked at over uh, 70 runners and they found clear differences in the amount of muscle breakdown that was occurring. And they also mapped to specific genes that are responsible for the muscle breakdown. So there's, oh. there's enzymes and stuff that get produced that break the muscles down. And the people who had genes that... Um, broke them down quicker, had more of this breakdown, and people who had genes that didn't uh, didn't have as much muscle breakdown. So can you go get a test to see whether you should be running marathons, like a genetic test? Yeah, you can run a marathon, and they'll give you a blood test afterwards <laughs> and see how much yeah. protein's in your blood. Um, so, yeah, basically people with the right genetic makeup can run marathons more easily with less damage than people with other non-optimum yeah. genetic uh, genes. I suppose it would make um, sense present. that there's like a genetic component to athleticism in general. Like, yeah. like you see a lot of the time in sports that like there's parent and offspring sort yeah. of generation. Oh yeah, and it's not be yeah. training, but yeah, so, there's somebody training and that kind of stuff. Yeah, and then there's um, so, you know, in the marathons there was like Eddie Izzard, you know, the comedian. He doesn't look like a runner at all. He's like a really stocky guy with skinny legs, um, and he did some stupid thing where he like ran a marathon every day for a month. Uh, and he clearly just must be built for it somehow. That's a lot of marathons. That's a lot yeah. of running in a, day. Yeah. Uh, in, no. in a month, I should say. Yeah. Nope. Um, I mean, and the other thing is, most people only run one, and then they'll take a few weeks yeah. to recover, yeah. and then they <laughs> might do another one in sort of three months or something. But or yeah, never running one every again. day is a, hmm. a lot. Um, but despite the fact that some people are genetically predisposed to be less harmed by doing marathons, the researchers didn't think that people shouldn't try doing marathons, just that if they were going to do it, they should talk to their doctor first, for one thing, and undertake a proper training program so that, you know, the, the, in the first case, the people with the heart problems were people who hadn't trained properly. Um, so undertake a proper training program to do an actual marathon uh, and, um, you know, make sure you're appropriately trained. And if, if you, you know, one of the people who is going to suffer from uh, excessive muscle breakdown. You have to uh, be aware of that before you before you undertake it. So, uh, just going back to um, uh, Phaedipides, I'm not sure if either of these things contributed to his uh, to his death. Partly because um, he probably didn't exist. So that's you know that's that's by the by. Um, apparently, the name Phaedipides means. Um, for lack of a horse or something like that. Yeah. It's, it's a joke name. It's an ancient Greek joke name saying that, oh, we didn't have a horse, so we sent this guy to run 
uh, back to, to Athens. But also, apparently in the story, he'd run... 240 kilometers in the two days prior to this final run. So maybe the fact that he ran almost 300 kilometers yeah. was probably what killed him and not the final 42. Um, oh, just on that too, the the official distance from marathon is uh, is 42.195 kilometers. Mm. The 0.195 was added in the 1908 Olympics in Britain so that the runners would all finish running past the uh, the, 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 the fancy royal box, royal box at the end. <laughs> and they so stuck around. They, it's stuck, it's stuck, and no one's ever no one's ever said, hey, can we just get rid of this last 200 metres? They've just hung on to it. So that's fun to, yeah. fun to remember if you stumble just before the finish line. You've actually finished the marathon, but the royal family's to blame. Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. So a couple weeks ago, we had science communicator and comedian Alana Coley join us in the studio to talk about her show Parasite Loss. Um, that's part of the Melbourne Comedy Festival. And so while she was in the studio, we asked her for the inside scoop. Like, she want, we wanted to know the goods. We wanted to know what are the best and worst parasites. And although she didn't give her give away her favorites, well, probably because she talks about them in her show, um, she did mention one, Toxoplasmosis gondii. Um, I thought I'd heard about this before, um, but I didn't actually know too much about it. And then Chris and Claire were all over it, and they were they knew what was going on, and they had references. So I thought, I felt a bit silly, so I thought that I would... Um, look it up and then share with our listeners all of the fun stuff I learned. It wasn't actually all that fun because this <laughs> just turns out that this this virus, this parasite, is actually quite um, quite deadly in in certain cases. Um, okay. Anyways, so this is what I have learned. So toxoplasmosis, sorry, Toxoplasma gondii is a parasite that causes toxoplasmosis, and toxoplasmosis is an infection that has um, different presentations depending on the person. For the most part, it will make you feel like you have a flu if you present any symptoms at all. So you'll get a lot of muscle aches and pains and fevers. But in some more serious cases, um, adults that are infected with toxoplasmosis gondii don't, um, they don't show to have any other um, symptoms, but then they experience these extreme pathological behavioral changes. Uh, but in some more serious cases, adults infected with um, toxoplasmosis gondii um, don't actually show a lot of symptoms, but they experience severe pathological behavioral change. Um, so basically, the, the parasite creates these infections in your body, and the infections... Um, are sort of presented as uh, cysts and lesions throughout the body. So you can have cysts. Uh, it creates cysts all over the place, like in um, in the retinas, in your heart, and um, oftentimes in the um, central nervous system. So if it gets to your brain or, or into a lot of your um, essential nerves, you can have a lot of um, adverse impacts onto your 
uh, if it's in your brain, it has a lot of adverse impacts on your um, neurological function, but then also it can have a lot of impacts on your motor functions as well. So if people get like cysts in their eyes, is that why some people have vision problems yep. as a result of yep. is the cysts actually in their eyes? Yeah, wow. yeah, on their retinas or lesions on their retinas that then um, basically, uh, from what I understand of the parasite, it's able to manipulate the cells nearby it. And so it will um, send... The, um, the neighboring cells into autophagy, which is when these cells um, basically consume themselves, and so they commit, uh, they consume themselves, and so they basically break down into their individual parts, and the cell no longer exists. So it sort of takes over this area in that way, um, and and because of um, the way that it can really um, Im impact the brain. Um, tox toxoplasma gondii has actually been linked with different disorders such as schizophrenia, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's. Um, there's a whole host of them that um, basically there hasn't been any true connection made, but it's been um, it's been proven in different studies that people um, that are classified with these neurological or um, uh, Neurological or uh, with these disorders tend to uh, the populations with these or disorders tend to have a higher occurrence of to um, toxoplasmosis than other than a, and then a control population. Um, the virus is or the parasite is actually particularly harmful and severe for those that already have a previously weakened immune system. So it's really. Um, severe in children, in the elderly, people that are um, battling uh, previous conditions, things like HIV, or if they're undergoing chemotherapy, or if they have, some, if they have an autoimmune disease like lupus, these, uh, these groups of people tend to have um, a higher susceptibility to toxoplasmosis. And it can actually be quite a fatal disease. So clearly, understanding how the parasite reproduces and propagates is it's pretty important. Um, and I think that I think that one of the things that really shocked me about the parasite, or the thing that I thought was interesting, was that it's re it's related to cats. I'm sure some of us have heard of that that like the relationship between tox toxoplasmosis and cats, and that's probably because um, so we're warm warm blooded species, and um, only warm blooded species can contract the the parasite, but cats and other felids, so our domestic cats, are they're known to be a host for this virus, so. Um, it's the it's one of the places or there are only known um, hosts that can, where the parasite can actually reproduce. Oh, okay. Yeah. So um, basically, cats will excrete the parasite in their um, in their feces. So handling um, of the feces can potentially lead to exposure. And um, keep your hands off the cat poo. Yeah. Well, you'd need to ingest. The don't eat the cat poo. Don't eat the cat poo is a good message. But yeah, so you need to ingest the parasite in order to um, have, in order to present with toxin um, plasmosis. But it's actually not as hard as you might think because mm. it's little things like, okay, so don't play with cat poo, sure. But if you're um, cleaning out a litter box, it's quite like mm -hmm. that's an easy place for it to be transferred. If your cat's poo in your garden, your veggie garden. Exactly. Yeah. So um, that's that. a lot of the cases actually come from people that have been gardening or mm -hmm. people that have eaten fruit um, that has been grown in soil 
that um, that may have had cat poo in it sort of thing. Right. And it just like after gardening, haven't washed their hands correctly and, or thoroughly and then have consumed it when they've eaten something. And or with, potentially haven't washed the food. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. that's that's the big one. Like a lot of people um, will uh, won't rinse their their fruit and produce th- uh, thoroughly. So they might be able to contract it that way. Yeah. Um, one of the most devastating types or versions of toxoplasmosis is actually congenital toxoplasmosis, which is the form that infects unborn fetuses. Um, so we mentioned that we you would need to ingest the parasite in order to become infected, but another way that it's actually um, transmitted is from a pregnant mother to a, to their fetus to their. Baby. Is that what happened in transporting, Stu? Uh, I can't remember the baby. The baby <laughs> contracted it and died, which is a horrifying scene in the film. Right. Yeah. I have not seen this film, and I don't think I want to. Um, the baby's not in the sequel, so. Oh, great. I'm glad that there's a sequel. <laughs> um, yeah, so anyways, um, congenital toxoplasmosis has been associated with um, a lot of fetal heart, uh, fetal hearts, fetal deaths, and also um, a lot of miscarriages. But there have been some cases of infants that are born with um, toxoplasmosis, but like more often than not, um, they develop really severe neurological and neurocognitive defects. Um, neurocognitive defects. Um, there have been some drug therapies uh, for toxoplasmosis. However, most of the therapies are only effective if the disease is caught early enough. If it gets into the stages where um, it starts to create these lesions and cysts, like the ones that I mentioned earlier, um, a lot of the time by that stage, the drugs or the virus is just really unresponsive to the drugs. So there's no way of... Parasite. Sorry. The parasite is very... Um, unresponsive to the drug therapies and as far as I know there's no real cure for it yet but um, but there are a few people working in that space to figure things out anyways um, if you know more about uh, toxoplasmosis gondii or toxoplasmosis I'd love to hear it so feel free to contact us on Facebook and Twitter and teach me more Okay, so I was listening to a podcast recently, and on this podcast, it was this was talking about uh, racial bias in the criminal justice system in the United States, which is not much of a surprise to to anybody, as you probably know. That 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 happens. That, that happens. Right. Yeah. Um, but they were in particular in this particular um, episode, they were talking about the application of laws about which knives are legal, legal and illegal, and it's no surprise again that this is kind of applied in a racial fashion. So African-Americans are more likely to be arrested and charged or convicted with having a so-called illegal knife, even though it actually turns out a lot of them turn out to be legal knives. It's just inconsistently applied. Mm. 
And um, the presenters tried to relate this or related this to uh, kind of a historical perception of African-Americans. They looked at the history of it. And back in sort of the, um, the early 20th century, there was this kind of stereotype that of African-Americans carrying razors as like the big kind of threatening weapon that they would, that they would use. Mm. Uh, and one of the, um, the anecdotes they related was they, they mentioned a, um, a famous sociology experiment uh, where this came up. And this, this experiment, they said, involved uh, people being shown, uh, some, basically some, sorry, a group of white people being shown a photograph of a white person holding a razor blade while arguing with a black person on the New York subway. They're only shown it for a very short period of time. And then they were asked to recall, to write down what they saw. And more than half of the witnesses said that they saw the black man actually holding the razor mm. against the white man's throat. So... Huh. This is quite a startling thing and tells you a lot about... So, so the photo showed the white man holding a razor blade yep. and arguing with a black man. Yep. But the witnesses said that they saw a photo of the black man holding the razor to the white man's throat. <laughs> yes, yeah. So they, that's, that's a pretty big leap of that uh, is that, a is, big that is a big leap. That is a big leap. And I was, look, I was very curious about this. I mean, you know, uh, you know, first of all, there was my natural instinct to fact check, uh, as we discussed, <laughs> you know, it's kind of like a, you know, a lost in science kind of thing. We were, we were big on that. Also, um, because we're talking about the historical context, I was really curious to know how long ago this study was done. You know, I thought mm. that was an interesting thing. And plus, I really wanted to see the photo. Um, you know, I think <laughs> you was, just started Googling for the photo. That was really. the main thing. I wanted to see the photo. Um, so I looked it up. I Googled the appropriate keywords. Unfortunately, I couldn't find the photo. What I did find, though, was a textbook um, that referenced the story. This was um, a textbook. It was a sociology textbook. It's called Sociology, Exploring the Architecture of Everyday Life, Brief Edition. It was written, this version was published in 2010 by David M. Newman. And it told the story as was told on the on the podcast, and as I just told you then, um, this uh, did not say who had actually done the study, but it did get their source was from a book, another book called by by called William Heilmreich, called "The Things They Say Behind Your Back: Stereotypes and the Myths Behind Them." Uh, this one was published in 1982. Um, now, at this point, though, uh, the, the sociology textbook had referred to how most books had been published in 1992, so I probably should have smelt something <laughs> weird was going on. But, yeah, I, that was um, Helmreich didn't give any references, so I couldn't, still couldn't see the photo. I could, still couldn't see what the original study was, but essentially told the story exactly the same, pretty much the same words. Um, so, yeah, look, um, I had to search a bit more wider to do, you know, spend a bit more time at the Google machine. Um, and I did find out more about it. I found that it was indeed a, a very famous experiment. And but it's referred to not just by sociologists, um, but also notably by a lot of legal scholars who talk about the reliability of eyewitness testimony. Right. And you'll have, you know, psychologists giving expert testimony in court saying, you know, this is why eyewitnesses can be unreliable and this sort of thing. So it is a, it is a very famous study. It's used a lot, has influenced a lot of... Um, uh, legal practice. Yep. Um, but eventually, though, I did manage to track down what apparently is the famous original study, where it was actually published, first published in 1945 um, by gentlemen Gordon W. Allport and Leo Postman. And it turned out the experiment was a little bit different to mm -hmm. how it was described uh, in the, the first sources I'd found. So basically what they did was they, uh, they had a group of people, they'd send some of them out of the room, um, they would flash up a picture on the screen, or they would put up a picture on the screen. It wasn't a photograph, it was a line drawing. Um, and then what would happen if they get someone in the audience to, looking at that picture, describe it to someone who they send back in. 
uh, and then that person who just can't see the picture had then has to describe it to the second person who sent back in, and then has to describe it to the third person who sent back in. Oh, so like so broken so telephone kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, or Chinese whispers as it's yep. sometimes called. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like it was a bit different to the first thing, the first study. Um, this is because the the paper that this was publishing was about the psychology of rumor not about eyewitness testimony. So it was more about how a story gets distorted from being passed from person to person. Interesting. Than it is about an eyewitness looking at a picture. Because, again, this wasn't like some people looking at a scene and then recalling correctly. This was the person actually describing the scene is looking at the picture, but then the person who's telling the story, trying to remember the details, yep. distorts it as they're passing it on. Uh, now, they did find in their experience, they did find it was startling that over half of the, the tellings of this particular story, which in this version, like I said, it was a line drawing. It did involve um, a black man in a suit on a subway, a white man kind of dressed in labourer's clothes, holding a razor, having a bit of an argument. Um, yeah, in, in their, in their um, recallings of it, the, the whole sort of chain of stories, at some point, over half the times, the knife would move from the white man to the, to the black man. Um, so there was actually something, and the authors, original authors, did attribute this to what they thought was some sort of uh, racial bias on behalf of the um, the people telling the stories. But um, but yeah, look, what is fascinating is that this was, as I said, it was a story about the study of rumor, and it has itself become a phenomenon of rumor. Um, I did find another article that examined actually this very question of how this original Allport and Postman study had been passed down inaccurately from person to person. And they basically <laughs> traced it, traced the, 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 the inaccurate retellings. They could see that people weren't actually quoting the original study. Some of them would mention the name of the study, but they weren't quoting the study itself. They were quoting a previous reference who they got it from because you could see the same kind of errors creeping in. You know, sometimes one of the participants would be sitting down as opposed to standing up and someone else, the next person down the line would repeat that same thing like they were sitting down, whereas, you know, in the original picture they were both standing. So, yeah, look, it, is an, it really is an interesting thing. Like I said, it doesn't disprove the whole kind of notion of that the original point of it was, which is that there is this racial bias, this, this attribution of the African-Americans of the time having razors, but it does say something very different in terms of, um, you know, it's got nothing to say about eyewitness mm. testimony. It is more about the way that we tell stories inaccurately and those bias, that racial bias creeps into people's narrative that they're forming. Um, so, yeah, look, that's just a little interesting thing I, I came across. Um, look, I'm actually quite a little bit disappointed by it because basically it means you do have to check all your sources. <laughs> just because you see someone quote, he's a famous experiment that did such and such, you can't just take their word for mm. it. That even if it is a very famous experiment, because you kind of have to go and look at what the actual experiment, experiment was. was. Yeah. In a lot of ways, the more famous the experiment, the more likely it is that someone's misinterpreted yep. it that along been the way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Look, and I found, like I said, I found a, a study that examined how I had been. So I couldn't actually find online the original paper, so I had to go to the library and look it up, um, <laughs> the original paper, just to sort of make sure I was reading the right thing. Because I couldn't even trust anything that I was reading about this study. I had to go and actually look up the original one just to make sure I was getting the, the unvarnished truth. So there, that's your moral of the story here is that you do always have to fact check your facts. Make sure that if you're using a famous study to back up your point, no matter how valid your point is, make sure that you're getting it right. <laughs> nice yeah. one. And also that libraries are not quite obsolete just yet. Exactly. Very good point.
that's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook uh, and if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost, lost in science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.